we're continuing today our series called Dawn of Discipleship, where each week we've been looking through the eyes of another disciple to learn about Jesus and to learn about different aspects of discipleship for ourselves. So far, we've looked at Peter and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, and we've learnt things like the disciples abandoned all to follow Jesus. Some were excellent at inviting others to meet Jesus, and some were really good at asking Jesus questions. And similarly, we too have been invited to abandon all in our following of Jesus, to invite others to um, come and meet him and to bring our questions to him also. This series has reminded me of a movie that I took my big kids to see uh, a couple of years ago now. I was going to say last summer, but it's a couple of years ago now. It's called Wonder. And it's a movie about a boy named August Pullman. This boy was born with medical facial deformities. And the movie, uh, which is based on a book, it's always based on a good book, isn't it? It follows the story of him uh, starting at mainstream school. It's a really good movie. There's a week left of holidays, and if you need something to do on a rainy day, I do recommend it for you. You don't have to have any uh, kids for the excuse to watch it. It's great. I loved it because it's beautifully crafted. The plot never diverts from August as the main character. And he's amazingly bright and he's a good-hearted boy, really brave as he overcomes the challenges of starting school with such visible differences to the other kids. But as the story about him continues, it switches viewpoints at various moments. So you can see the story through the eyes of his mum and his dad and his sister and his best friend and some others as well. The story is always about August, but as the perspective moves to each new character, the story is enriched so that we can see his journey by his relationships. And as an audience member, you're invited to identify with these characters so that as they wonder at this beautiful, brave boy and his journey, you can feel it and understand it so much more too. Well, this series is a bit like that. As we look through the lens of these disciples, we're still following the Jesus story, the story of his life, the meaning of his death, the impact of his resurrection. But as these disciples interact with him, we're invited to consider our own part in the story, our learning of Jesus, as Mal put it last week. That's what a disciple does, they learn Jesus. Today, we're going to look through the eyes of Nicodemus. The rest of the disciples we've looked at so far have been part of the 12, that inner group. Nicodemus isn't one of those. And interestingly, we don't even know at the end of this passage, do we, whether or not he um, has any conclusions about who Jesus is. Does he accept him? Does he reject him? Uh, Does he even believe in him? But Nicodemus has been watching and he has been wondering. So let's turn to the text now. You can keep it open at chapter 3. I'll refer to that as we uh, go through the talk tonight. We meet him in a quiet, private setting. If you glance back at chapter 2 or just recall chapter 2, there's two very large and public uh, events where large crowds are watching on. First, there's the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, and then there's the clearing of the temple courts in Jerusalem. Jesus performs many miracles, we're told, and many have observed them and come to believe in his name. Well, having seen some of these miracles himself, Nicodemus takes this moment at night to follow his intrigue 
and to seek a private conversation with Jesus. So by contrast to chapter two with its large and public gatherings, in chapter three, the narrative slows down. It narrows its focus and it concentrates on this individual conversation. Nicodemus, who we read in verse one, is a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council and later we hear he's one of Israel's teachers. Jesus calls him that. So being a Pharisee, that's one of the first things we hear about him, uh, it meant that he was an expert in and dedicated to Jewish law, influential in the Jewish community in sort of regard to their daily life and practices. Being on the Jewish ruling council, that's the second thing we hear, um, is an official position on the Sanhedrin. This is the parliament who governed the political and religious affairs of the Jewish people. And then as a teacher, that's the third thing we hear about him, these are separate, uh, this is a separate credential to the other two ones, and it means that he would have taught from the scriptures actually in the synagogues. Really, all that's trying to say is that he's an influential leader, officially and unofficially. He's part of the educated elite. He's a man in the know, and he lives at the centre of Jewish life and activity. And he comes to Jesus with curiosity and intrigue. He's different to some of the other Pharisees we meet who challenge him and question him. Nicodemus seems to be genuinely wondering about who Jesus is. In verse 2, he calls him rabbi. So he's speaking respectfully to him, teacher to teacher. But more than just a usual teacher, he recognises that God seems to be particularly and especially with Jesus. How else could he perform all those miracles, he thinks. We know these things about you, Nicodemus is saying in verse 2. John, the author of this passage, is setting us up to see Nicodemus coming to Jesus as one who's in the know. Like he of all people is about to take just a shortcut to the 2IC position. John really wants us to notice that Nicodemus has a bag full of credentials, born as one of God's best. And so as he comes to Jesus for special, perhaps even divine information, we can join Nicodemus in being shocked by what Jesus says next. Verse three. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now Nicodemus, who we know is an expert Jew, knew that when Jesus is talking about seeing the kingdom of God, he's talking about those that will participate in the kingdom at the end of the age, those who will experience eternal life. And when it comes to being counted among those who are in, Nicodemus is used to being in. But Jesus says no one is in unless they're born again. If I was Nicodemus, I'd be thinking, are you crazy? Born again? I couldn't have been born better. I've been born a Jew. I couldn't have been born more in. And you can see in Nicodemus's response that he has been really thrown. How is this even possible, he's thinking? How can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus hasn't understood, and so Jesus repeats and expands what he means. Verse 5, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God 
unless they are born of water and spirit. This isn't actually a brand new concept. The renewal of water and spirit as part of God's restoring plan had been prophesied long before Jesus' coming. Ezekiel, who was an Old Testament prophet, had recorded this prophecy from God. This is from the passage we had read just before. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God had always promised a time when he would save and restore his people. And in this time when he establishes his kingdom, his people would be made clean by the sprinkling of water. It's not hard for us to connect to that image, is it, of that new life that comes with water, with these beautiful drenching rain. Thank God for that. So clean by sprinkling water and renewed to new life by the Spirit. Renewal, regeneration, new life given by the Spirit is part of being in the kingdom of God. As much as Nicodemus knew, and by the standards of everyone, he knew heaps, he was still completely off the mark. As good as his credentials were, as qualified as he was given his birthright, he still needed complete renewal, even he needed to be born again. And so here's my first point about discipleship. This is what it is not. It's not about getting near enough and then letting Jesus fill that remaining gap. It's not about being pretty good and then just making small amendments until you're enough. Being a disciple involves total renewal by the Spirit. As I was preparing for this uh, tonight, a story of a man from my old church came to mind. So I'd love to introduce you to this man, Rob Reeves. Rob brought his family up in Taramara. He started out his career in sales and eventually started his own business and enjoyed a really good life. He was well respected and by all accounts, he was a really good man. He came to church a couple of times a year when it didn't clash with golf, but he encouraged his wife and kids to come regularly and he actively um, was involved in making sure his kids were part of the youth programs. He raised two lovely Christian kids who are now fully grown adults with their own families. Well, when he was 74, he went to see that movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ. You know the one I'm talking about? And with its confronting images of Jesus' death, He was curious about Jesus and he went and did a course on the life of Jesus at his church. And the story goes that as he sat in week two, he had a total realisation. This quiet and humble man said to the group, I always thought I was a Christian and I've just realised that I'm not. He realised that despite living a really good and honourable life and managing to avoid any major missteps, that it wasn't about anything that he had done, but that eternal life was found only in Jesus. 
Well, at the age of 74, Rob became a Christian that day. He gave his, his testimony to our whole church, and I'll never, ever forget it. He died, actually, not that long after that, but he died with a great sense of hope for his eternal life in Jesus. I spoke this week uh, with the leader of that course, and he was saying that as all this happened, the most incredible part was to watch the humility of a 74-year-old man who'd lived a really good life say to the whole group, I need a new life. He'd seen many come through that course over the years, and for desperate youths looking for meaning, or adults coming in a really broken state, the concept of new life was easy to grasp and really comforting. But he often wondered, what about the people who seem to have done a pretty good job at being self-made? Maybe you're doing pretty good at living a good life. Maybe you've got expert knowledge in Jesus and you even call him rabbi. Maybe you're dedicated to Christian ethics and you live a really upright life. Or perhaps you're very reliable in coming to the, our Christian gatherings. Being a disciple does not begin with these things. We don't need small amendments to our already good lives. We need to be born again in the Spirit. And here is where it begins. It begins with looking upon Jesus as God's instrument of mercy and salvation. And to understand this, in verse 14, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of a story from the scriptures involving Moses and a strange snake on a pole. We can refer to the full story back in Numbers 21, but essentially it goes like this. Israel had failed badly. In the midst of God rescuing them, they were impatient and complaining. And so God had sent a plague of venomous snakes. Many were bitten and faced physical, actual death. But God in his mercy offered a way to yet live, though they were facing death. He said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. As Jesus remembers this story to Nicodemus, I kind of picture him nodding, yes, those people that were bitten by the snake, they really needed saving from death. And some people in life have a very keen sense of their situation, don't they? In the gasping moments after being bitten by a venomous snake, metaphorically, they thankfully and desperately look to the pole for life. But I wonder if Nicodemus is thinking of himself, what crisis? I'm among the righteous. And this story calls Nicodemus to see what he does not understand. He's coming to Jesus in darkness, not just actual darkness in the night time, but spiritual darkness. Despite his credentials, he's among those facing death. The free gift of eternal life is as irrespective of our credentials as it is our worst failures. And this is comforting to the broken, but a real challenge to those who feel close to the mark. 
this story Jesus is telling reiterates all that he's been saying about new life and it gives him the place to find it. Just as God's provision of the snake pole provided an instrument of salvation, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up so that whoever looks to Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus far exceeds what the snake pole did. He comes with the authority of the one who comes from heaven. He will be lifted up as God's instrument of mercy and whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And at this moment, John, the author, breaks back into the conversation. Verse 16, the famous John 3, 16. Makes us all want to sing a song from Sunday school, doesn't it? It's actually an executive summary from John. John saying, don't miss this conversation. It's massive. And in summary, this is what Jesus has been saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Nicodemus couldn't have known in that moment that Jesus was going to be crucified, though that is certainly what Jesus is referring to. But John's readers did know, and we know too, don't we? The Son of Man was lifted up on a cross. God's very own Son, now in flesh, did perish, so that those who are facing death can instead be saved. And Jesus was exalted and glorified and raised to life again. We're invited to believe in him, to trust Jesus for our eternal life. And whoever does so is born again by the Spirit. Romans 8.11 says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. I think I could reread that every day. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. Nicodemus who came to Jesus saying, we know, we got this had not understood. He may have believed that Jesus performed miracles. He may have called him rabbi. But discipleship begins with this realisation. I do need saving, and God has provided a saviour. I will do it. Full stop. God had promised Ezekiel. Well, we sit in this large crowd, but imagine now the story narrows, and it's now just you and Jesus. Or like the movie Wonder, the perspective of the Jesus story has shifted, and it's now angled through the lens of your own eyes. Do you look to Jesus and believe in him for your eternal life? Do you know that God so loved you that he's poured his Holy Spirit into you? so that you've moved from death to life, renewed, reborn.
If you're new to church, this is where discipleship begins. And if you've been here for years, but like my friend Rob, have somehow never contemplated this first step for yourself, this is where discipleship begins. God loves the world. He loves you. And so he's provided the means to eternal life in Jesus. Do you believe this? Well, what a relief in this most black and white moment that we're given Nicodemus, who's in the process of believing. It is gracious that God has given us a clear-cut way to have assurance of our eternal life in Jesus. And verse 19 is emphatic, isn't it? This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But God also gives us Nicodemus because he understands that discipleship is a process. We meet Nicodemus twice more in John's Gospel. He reappears in chapter 7, where the chief priests and the Pharisees have gathered to discuss Jesus. And Nicodemus pipes up. I wonder if it's a loud voice or a quiet voice. We don't know. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's actually been doing? He doesn't defend Jesus, but he certainly doesn't confess belief in his name. He seems to be keen, though, doesn't he, to hear him out. I think we might put him in the undecided but not against category. He reappears one more time in chapter 19, where he accompanies Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus' body after the crucifixion. Asking Pilate for the body of Jesus and giving him a proper burial was a pretty risky and visible move. Nicodemus even brought enough mixture of spices, a quantity that was befitting the burial of a king. It seems now that he's out in the daylight, publicly acknowledging Jesus as his saviour king. Maybe as he saw the crucifixion, Jesus' words to him earlier about being lifted up made sense and the penny dropped. Discipleship is a process. And this process can feel really exposing. Verse 20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. No wonder Nicodemus came in the safety of being concealed in that night sky. Walking into this life of truth is really exposing. And for people who find themselves in desperate need, where perhaps life has been bruising, either by their own choices or the choices of others, grabbing hold of new life in Jesus is a welcomed and comforting choice. And the next story in John's Gospel is a bit like that. It's the story of the woman at the well. We meet her at noon in the full basking sun in the hottest part of the day. The whole town knows of her shame. She is already fully exposed. And so when Jesus offers her living water, new life, she takes it. And quickly she's able to say, this man really is the saviour of the world. But for Nicodemus, there's much more at stake. All the things that have been his best assets he must admit count for nothing when it comes to receiving new life. And as he lays each of them down, his birthright, 
his excellent knowledge, his influence, his righteous living, he's left really bare. But in doing so, he's able to receive God's loving gift, which he has perfectly provided for him in Jesus, eternal life. I spoke to Rob's son this week to ask permission to share his dad's story. And as I asked him um, about that, I said to him, what was your dad like after he became a Christian? And he said, he cried all the time. He was a lot more emotional. His heart was softened. As he accepted this incredible love of God, it softened his exposed heart. It really isn't about in and out. It's certainly not about a good life getting you in, he realised. It was about an open heart receiving the free gift, the loving gift of eternal life from the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Being born again begins with looking to Jesus for new life as we stop looking to ourselves for salvation and believe in him. The process of discipleship starts. Where are you in this story? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that eternal life is not contingent on anything we do but is generously and completely gifted to anyone who believes that Jesus is our saviour. As we strip back our best efforts and lay our exposed lives bare, would you fill us with your cleansing and renewing spirit? Thank you for your perfect love. Amen. We've got a couple of questions and some more still coming through. So let me uh, jump with this one to start off with. Thank you. Uh, how best to start a conversation with someone sincerely who sincerely believes they are saved by works? Yeah, I think I would probably ask them how they cope with that daily ledger that they're left with at the end of the day. Uh, you know, as you sort of cast your mind back, rewind the video of each day, we sort of tempted always to do that, aren't we? To sort of weigh up um, the best things we've done, maybe the worst things we've done. And I think it's a burden. And I always think of uh, the words of Jesus that says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And it's like this swapping. That's heavy, it's hard. It's hard to do it on your own. That work is hard. I'll do the work, actually, on the cross um, so that you can have a light load and freedom. So I don't know, I'd probably start a question with someone who's... um, who's stuck in works with just an offer of freedom from that daily heavy load of assessing that day. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Next question. Uh, I'm new to Christianity and finding it difficult to think about God and talk to God every Mm. day when I'm busy at work. Do Mm. you have any ideas how I can do this better? Yeah. One of the best things somebody ever said to me um, was to ask God for that. Uh, to sort of just 
just say, Jesus, in each day, actually, would you help me see you more, notice you more, um, feel hungrier for your word? I think the reality is we don't muster that perfectly on our own. Uh, routine and rituals help with those things. But I think asking God for, for that um, prompting to go to the word um, is a great idea. The other thing I would say on a practical um, level is to put your hands on some resources that would be really easy to use at work. So there's uh, places like um, Bible Society that can send you regular emails so it would pop up in your inbox and they'd just be lovely triggers through the day uh, to be reading scripture um, or to be uh, mindful of praying. So maybe just some practical resources as well. Brilliant. Uh, there are so many questions coming through. This is really awesome. Unfortunately, we probably won't get through them all tonight. Uh, so how about I ask you this one. Uh, how do I get born again? What do I actually do? There's, um, it really is as simple as imagining yourself face-to-face with Jesus and answering that question, who do you say I am? And if you say, I think that you were, Jesus, that you were God's son who died for the sins of many, that I would have eternal life, then that is how you become a Christian. Amen, if that's something you've just said in your mind. It's as simple as that. There's no um, perfect words or exact ritual that takes place, but just, do you, who do you say I am? And if you say, I think you're Lord, amen. <laughs>